Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 100, The Occupation of Boston. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. Before we get started this week, we want to say an enormous thank you to all of our listeners, those who have stuck with us for 100 episodes and those who have recently discovered the show. I can't believe this is already episode 100. At the end of each episode, I give the short link to our show notes. The first time we recorded a show, it seemed insanely overconfident to give that short link as hubhistory.com slash 001. Knowing that most podcasts never make it to episode 10, giving the number with three digits seemed optimistic, to say the least. Thanks to all of you for listening, for sharing our show with your friends, and for all the feedback you've given us over these past two years. Stay tuned until the end of the show to hear how you can get a free Hub History sticker, or maybe even a book. That said, this week our special guest is a man whose name is nearly synonymous with the coming of the revolution in Boston. J.L. Bell is the author behind the book The Road to Concord, How Four Stolen Cannon Ignited the Revolutionary War, and daily updates on his blog at boston1775.net, as well as contributions to the Journal of the American Revolution and many other publications. If you've ever been to the Boston Massacre reenactment in March, you've also heard his voice narrating the action. If you've ever been to History Camp Boston, you've likely heard him speak there. And if you follow Hub History on Twitter, you probably know that we basically spend all day retweeting him. We've invited him on to discuss events that took place 250 years ago this week. After years of upheaval in Boston, the British government sent troops to keep the peace in our restive town, and those troops arrived in Boston on October 1, 1768. This began a tense occupation that culminated in the Boston Massacre less than two years later. But before we talk to author J.L. Bell about the occupation of Boston, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. For this week's historic site, we're featuring a monument that's associated not with the occupation of Boston, but rather with the siege of Boston in 1775 and 1776. At the top of a hill near Union Square, in what was once Charlestown, but is now Somerville, stands a massive stone tower with three levels of crenellated battlements. Though it looks like a misplaced medieval castle, this tower is actually a 1903 monument erected to mark an important site in Boston's revolutionary history. After the battles at Lexington and Concord ignited the long-simmering tensions in the province into all-out war, New England militias rushed to surround Boston and trap the British regulars within the peninsular town. There were central camps in Roxbury and Cambridge, with outposts and siege lines fanning out in all directions. High ground was prized to anchor these siege lines at a strong position and to provide a vantage point from which to observe the enemy's movements. The top of Prospect Hill was a particularly valuable high point, providing a commanding view of Charlestown, Boston, and the harbor beyond. At the top of the hill, the Patriots dug a series of interlocking earthworks and walls that became known as the Citadel. After the Battle of Bunker Hill, the Citadel on Prospect Hill became even more important. The British occupied Charlestown as far as the Neck, putting them nearly face-to-face with the Patriot forces on Prospect Hill, with its supporting works on Winter Hill, Mount Pisgah, and eventually Plowed Hill. North of the Charles River, the lines would remain static from Bunker Hill until the British forces evacuated almost a year later in March of 1776. In the midst of this grinding siege, George Washington ordered a patriotic display to boost the morale of his tired soldiers 
in the middle of the difficult winter. On New Year's Day 1776, he ordered that a new flag should be raised over the citadel. Known as the Continental Colors, or the Grand Union Flag, this was the first flag meant to represent the fledgling nation, even before it declared independence. Like the modern American flag, it had 13 alternating red and white stripes to represent the 13 colonies. But in the Canton, or upper corner, there was a British Union Jack where our white stars on a blue field are today. The topography of Prospect Hill has changed since George Washington's time, as landfill was removed in the 19th century to create level, dry ground in what's now Union Square. However, Prospect Hill still offers a commanding view. After you've finished exploring the small park at the top of the hill, check out the tower. Climb even to the first level, and you'll have a million-dollar view of the city skyline. If you visit on New Year's Day, you can experience the annual reenactment of the raising of the continental colors. We'll include a few pictures from last year's ceremony in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we have a signature event from the Revolution 250 Committee. On October 6th and 7th, Boston will hold a commemoration of the 250th anniversary of the occupation of Boston. After the Stamp Act riots of 1765 and protests around the 1767 Townsend Act, British troops were sent to Boston to maintain order. As the Revolution 250 website says, Far from quieting the town, the arrival of the troops marked a significant escalation of tension and violence that would lead to the Boston Massacre in 1770 and widen the rift between the British Parliament and the people of the province of Massachusetts Bay. Men and women of Boston had to learn to live with their unwelcome new neighbors. What does it mean to be occupied by a military force? How do people adapt to living in such a condition? How can civilians in an occupied city or town resist? Visitors attending this program will gain a better understanding of the conditions that led to the decision by the British government to send troops into Boston, the controversies surrounding such a move, and how the men and women of Boston adapted and resisted, and be able to place this period within the larger context of the American Revolution. J.L. Bell will tell us more about what is planned at the end of the episode, but here are a few of the events tentatively scheduled for Saturday, October 6th. 9 a.m., British troops land at Long Wharf. 9.30 a.m., salute to King George II at the Old State House. 10 a.m., troops arrive at Faneuil Hall. 10.30 a.m., troops welcomed at the reviewing stand, downtown crossing. 11.15 a.m., troops arrive on Boston Common. And from 12 p.m. to 4 p.m., British soldiers patrol downtown Boston and occupy Boston Common. For more information, go to revolution250.org, and we'll have a link in this week's show notes. And now, it's time for this week's main topic. Our special guest this week joined us remotely and there were times when the microphone picked up a rustling sound. We've done our best to edit out the resulting noises, but you will hear a few throughout the show. We think it's worth it, though, because the result is a conversation with one of the foremost experts on Boston's role in the American Revolution. We asked him about the 1768 arrival of British soldiers who were sent to quell unrest in Boston. So our guest this week is the prolific blogger behind Boston1775.net, where he chronicles in exhaustive detail what Boston was like around the time of the outbreak of the Revolutionary War. He's also the author of the 2016 book, The Road to Concord, How Four Stolen Cannon Ignited the Revolutionary War, and he's a member of the Revolution 250 Committee. 
J.L. Bell, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much, Jake and Nikki. We wanted to invite you on today to talk about an event that, at the time this airs, will be right in the midst of its 250th anniversary, the, the 1768 occupation of Boston. And to kick us off, I think, for me, there's no better place to start than a very famous engraving by Paul Revere. He did a very well-known engraving of the Boston Massacre, and then still famous, but somewhat less famously, an engraving of the landing of the British troops on Long Wharf on October 1st, 1768. We'll put a link to that in the show notes this week so all our listeners can see this engraving. But there's a caption uh, that he includes at the bottom of the picture, and I, I want to read that and then sort of get re your reaction to it. All right. So on September 30th, 1768, the ships of war, armed schooners, transports, etc., came up the harbor and anchored round the town. Their cannon loaded, a spring on their cables, which is a phrase I had to look up to realize that it means they had extra lines rigged to their anchor cables so that they would always present a menacing broadside to the town. So that a spring on their cables as for a regular siege. At noon on Saturday, October the 1st, the 14th and 29th regiments, a detachment from the 59th regiment and train of artillery with two pieces of cannon, landed on the long wharf, there formed and marched with insolent parade, drums beating, fifes playing, and colors flying up King Street, each soldier having received 16 rounds of powder and ball. So I guess knowing that Paul Revere took some liberties with his engraving of the massacre, how accurate does that description strike you? I think those details are accurate, but I think Revere chose those details to make a political point that the British military was basically treating Boston as a hostile town, that the Royal Navy was pointing guns at the town, that the, Royal, the British Army was coming into town with their guns, and as he said, with uh, every soldier uh, loaded with ammunition. Now, that uh, print was created by Paul Revere with an artist named Christian Remick. As with the massacre engraving, Revere wasn't a good enough graphic artist to do it all on his own, but at least with the landing of the troops, he gave his collaborator credit. And Christian Remick uh, also did another uh, uh, a painting, which uh, exists in a, some different versions around different Boston institutions that is looking the other way uh, from the city out at all those warships in the harbor. And in both cases, he was making a point that not only was this you know, a... a lively scene with lots of things to see, but that the British military was actually a practically invading part of its own empire. There's another part of the print which sometimes is uh, pointed out as propagandistic, which is the way that the Boston cityscape is just dotted with all these church spires. But in fact, that's probably what the city looked like. The churches were the tallest buildings and the landmarks. Nevertheless, by showing those church towers, that was feeding into the Boston Whigs' message that we are a peaceful town, we are a religious town, we are a patriotic town, and we should not be treated this way. Yeah, I know I've seen uh, the, sh the portrait of William Shirley, which portrays sort of a, a distant view of Boston in the background from the hills of Roxbury, and you definitely see those church spires sticking up, but I guess it does also make the, the point of this very pious town of Boston. Exactly. And that's very much how Boston saw itself. And because it was a congregationalist town, uh, its version of religion was different from 
most of the rest of the British Empire. So it's hard to know where exactly to begin the story of the occupation. You know, we thought about tying it to the Stamp Act riots or to the unrest after the Townsend Act, but that left a lot of time to cover. And we know that people often regard the seizure of John Hancock's ship, the Liberty, as the proximate cause of the occupation. So can you remind people about the Liberty Affair and how that may have inspired the occupation? Okay. Well, the the paper trail on the customs commissioner's side actually goes back further. So they were asking for troops even before the Liberty Riot. But then when the Liberty Riot happened, they said, look, look, we've been asking all along. Look how awful it is. Uh, And that was indeed what caused the British government in London to make the shift. John Hancock had become a politician as well as a merchant in 1765. And he really enjoyed being a politician. And when the Townsend Act was enacted at the end of 1767, new tariffs on tea, glass, paper, lead, and painters' colors, uh, he was one of the leading merchants to say that these were unfair and that he would not be, at least not be happy about cooperating with the customs authorities. Part of the Townsend Act was to put a new board of customs, five high officials uh, headquartered in Boston to oversee the collection of the new tariffs all up and down the North American coast. So uh, the customs officials, the officers in Boston were, you know, their bosses were right there. So they were being especially strict and especially careful about collecting those duties. And as soon as Hancock said uh, that he didn't want to cooperate, that he was not going to let them search uh, beyond their traditional means of searching, uh, according to Hancock's side, uh, the customs people had it out for him. There was an incident early in 1768 when a uh, couple of customs officers, low-level uh, employees named uh, called land waiters or tide waiters because they were their job was simply to wait on the ship to make sure it wasn't unloaded secretly. Uh, one of them went below deck uh, and looked around, and this was not according to the rules. And Hancock actually had this man physically removed from his ship. Then another ship came in. This one was the one called the Liberty. There, uh, another set of tide waiters went on the ship uh, immediately after that visit. Uh, one of those tide waiters came off and swore that everything was on the up and up. But then uh, some weeks later, he went back to the customs office and said, well, in fact, he had been locked below decks for hours, and he could hear from below decks men taking off barrel after barrel of what he decided was Madeira wine. It sounded and, exactly like Madeira. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, so, uh, and so at that point, the customs officers went and uh, seized the ship Liberty and all the new cargo that Hancock had loaded onto it. Uh, in doing so, they also uh, they, they used the aid of a Royal Navy warship that was in the harbor at the time, HMS Romney, uh, and the Romney had been uh, impressing sailors, so the Romney was already unpopular. Binders so between, full of sailors. 
so between having uh, between the the Romney, the customs commissioners, and the very popular John Hancock losing his ship, this caused a riot, a riot against the uh, customs officials who had carried out that seizure legally, a riot against their houses. In one case, they went and grabbed a man's boat and carried it, dragged it across Boston all the way to the common and burnt it. And all the customs commissioners and their top deputies had to go to Castle Island or Castle William uh, for their protection. And at that point, that's when they sent off to London and said, look, we've been saying, telling you all along we're not safe. Now do you believe us? And that was when the London government did believe them and sent troops into Boston a, a few months later. So you suggested that though the, the Liberty Riot might have been the, the pretext to send in troops, that that conversation, at least on the local level or between the royal government of, of Massachusetts and the government back in London had been going on for longer. How, how long do you think that had been happening sort of on the down low? It, the customs commissioners had been asking for better protection for months. Uh, it didn't help that when they arrived in Boston uh, in November 1767, they arrived on the 5th of November. And <laughs> folks who listen to Hub History know that that was the day set aside in the Boston calendar for the riot. And the special guests that year were the customs commissioners. And so they were being tra trailed through the streets by these giant puppets uh, of themselves and of uh, the devils and uh, the popes and other enemies of New England. Uh, and so they were not getting a, a cheerful, friendly welcome from the very beginning. Yeah, and that's, then a, that's a great they, welcome committee. As they attempted over the next uh, few uh, months, to go about their business, they continued to uh, have protests. Outside of Boston, there were even men being tarred and feathered for the first time. Uh, so that, that's the customs commissioners had been asking for protection for a long time. However, they didn't have the legal authority to bring in uh, the uh, uh, any troops. That belonged either to the governor of uh, Massachusetts, uh, Francis Bernard, or possibly to the commander-in-chief of the British Army in North America, Thomas Gage. And they were doing uh, what we'd now call an Alphonse and Gaston uh, approach, where they say, oh, after you. No, no, only I will do this if you ask. No, no, you must. And, and Bernard definitely didn't want to be the person responsible for bringing in troops. And Gage, as a constitutional army officer, did not want to make the decision uh, on his own. He wanted some civil authority to tell him to do so. And this went on for months. And finally, the new Secretary of State in London, the Earl of Hillsborough, he made the decision. He decided to be stricter than his uh, predecessor. And that was when he told Gage, uh, send, put in some regiments into Boston. We'll send some from Ireland. And Gage then told Bernard. And the two things that Bernard uh, immediately did is he went and leaked a bit of this news to uh, some um, sympathetic people on the Massachusetts Council, and he also made sure to tell people that he hadn't asked for the troops. Once again, he was <laughs> passing the buck. He was saying that this was something that London had decided. I recently read that during that back and forth 
maybe Governor Bernard had suggested that maybe Gage's troops needed a, a better place to spend the winter than Halifax, and, and maybe they needed to move a few regiments to Boston just for better winter quarters, and that would avoid the controversial order to occupy a British town. It would it would have been an excuse. Uh, I think uh, Bernard was smart enough to know that uh, they would not have taken that excuse, that, that the Whigs <laughs> of Boston would not have accepted that excuse as uh, anything more than a flimsy reason to uh, put troops all around town. But in fact, a couple of years earlier, a, uh, a, a Royal Artillery Regiment had come in to uh, to Boston on its way to Quebec, and the weather snowed it in over the winter. So they did stay out at Castle William over the winter, and they actually trained the local militia uh, in using artillery. So that, although there were complaints from the legislature that Bernard had acted without proper authorization from the local uh, authorities, uh, that had actually turned out pretty well. So maybe that yeah, was I guess Bernard that, was that training about. probably came in handy a few years later. Exactly. In fact, they do. Uh, the early American artillerists do trace their fine training back to that summer or that winter. Now, did Bostonians know that the troops were coming in advance? There had been rumors for quite a while, but they really got the news only in uh, the beginning of September, seventeen sixty-eight. Yeah, that's very short notice. Yes, uh, the basically. Um, they heard within a couple of days after Bernard heard, and uh, I think the first person to uh, get the orders in North America was Gage. So when firebrands like Joseph Warren or James Otis or, or Sam Adams started to hear rumors or, or, I guess, official news that these regiments were going to be moving to Boston, how did they react to that? Some of the, them, and it's sometimes hard to figure out who uh, was saying what, but there were definitely people in Boston in early September who were saying we should oppose these troops militarily. We should bring out the militia. We should call in the people from the country. We should uh, make sure that they do not land. Uh, one of the people who is most attached, uh, whose name is attached to that position was a uh, merchant named William Molyneux, who had a really sharp temper and uh, wasn't always the most uh, politically savvy of the Whig leaders. It looks like the top leadership of the time, James Otis, Samuel Adams, uh, were actually opposed to that idea because they didn't want violence, they didn't want uh, disruption, they didn't want to be seen, Boston to be seen as unpatriotic. But they did want to uh, use every nonviolent and civil means to protest uh, what was going to happen. So they began to work through things like uh, institutions like the town meeting, and then they called something new a convention of the towns. So what was the convention of the towns, and how did that compare to like the colonial assembly? It basically was the Colonial Assembly or the Massachusetts General Court, the, the lower house of the legislature, uh, which uh, Governor Bernard had closed back in the summer because of the circular letter controversy. Uh, and we can talk about that, but really it was paperwork. Um, and But the, the, the main point was that Massachusetts did not have a working legislature at this time. So the convention of the towns was basically the towns themselves saying, well, we're going to have our own legislature. 
it was in some ways also like the Stamp Act Congress back in 1765, where uh, without any sort of precedent uh, or authorization from London, uh, various colonies sent delegates to New York. Well, this was various towns, not all towns participated, uh, sent representatives to the convention in Boston to act more or less as an unofficial legislature and be the voice of the people of Massachusetts. So you have the sort of the radical voices on one side saying, let's form up the militia. We, Our ancestors threw out Governor Andros in 1689 or whatever it was. Let's mm-hmm. do the same thing. March on Castle William. And on That's the other hand, the, which seems funny to think of somebody like Samuel Adams as a more moderate voice, but the moderate saying, no, let's go through a more democratic, peaceful process. And it it sounds like in the end that that more moderate voice prevailed. Yes, there was no attack on the troops, at least not a big one. Uh, and uh, the militia was not called up. Uh, there were these moments of, of uh, uh, fright, for instance, uh, on uh, the night of September 10th, 1768, somebody put a barrel, a turpentine barrel, on top of the beacon on Beacon Hill. And that flammable liquid, if it was lit, that was, uh, if the beacon was lit, that was supposed to be the uh, signal to the countryside that there was a military emergency and other beacons would be lit on other hills across, uh, uh, across the countryside. Uh, summoning the militia. This is an, an ancient uh, system, uh, but it was never actually put into practice. So the only time we can see it working is in uh, Return of the King, the movie. <laughs> uh, but uh, just putting the barrel up on the uh, beacon was enough to scare everybody in town. And there were special meetings, even though it was a Sunday, of the council and the selectmen. And eventually... Uh, somebody went up and realized that the barrel was was empty, and so it was always just there as a symbol. Uh, but uh, that was enough to make people worry. It was a powerful enough symbol because the beacon had been, I guess, largely abandoned. It's the beacon that gives Beacon Hill its name, but hadn't really been used in a practical way in, in it, quite a while. It's it never like. been used for that purpose, and it had even fallen down the previous year in 1767 and then put back up. Now, one interesting thing about the beacon, uh, the, the path up to the beacon uh, went between the houses of two men, John Hancock and William Molyneux, that hot-tempered merchant. So whoever went up there and carrying a barrel, the two neighbors who managed not to see anything happening were John Hancock and William Molyneux. How suspicious. Uh, Governor Bernard was very worried about an attack on the castle. So even though... Uh, the top Whigs were apparently trying to tamp down the idea of violence. The governor was uh, thinking it was a very real threat. So where was he getting those signals that this this might be a real threat of violence against Castle William? It's not clear, but he had heard about such rumors as far back as July when the customs commissioners first went and started hiding out there. Uh, and we don't know what his sources were, but he did have uh, some, uh, there were some informants in Boston who were saying some pretty, uh, uh, telling the royal officials that uh, people like Samuel Adams or Dr. Benjamin Church were voicing some very radical ideas. 
we have some of those uh, informants reports uh, to the customs commissioners, actually. Uh, they eventually made their way to the archives at Harvard. Boston at that point already had a bit of a reputation, I think, for, for mob violence after the Stamp Act riots and just our annual party on the 5th of November. Um, exactly. But I can't think of an instance when there was actual an armed insurrection for 80-ish years before that point. So it's interesting that he was that worried. Yes. I mean, there were, there was the, between uh, driving out Governor Andros and the Stamp Act riots, there was the Knowles riots of 1747 against uh, an, a Royal Navy ship impressing sailors. Uh, but those were very directed uh, bits of violence. And for our listeners who want to find out more about the Knowles riots, I will look up the episode number and put a link to that in this week's show notes. There we go. <laughs> So the population in Boston at this time is about 16,000. And uh, it seems like while the number of troops is a little murky, um, we have reason to believe that it would have topped out at around 3,000. Yes, there were eventually four full regiments of British troops in Boston. And although we don't have good figures for those particular regiments, uh, what would be typical or average for a British regiment would indicate that there were about 3,000 people suddenly brought into the city within weeks. So to put that in perspective, the population of Boston today is roughly 675,000, at least as of 2016, that was the number. So this is about 121,000 extra people coming to town tomorrow. So I have a lot of logistical questions of yeah. how were all of those people fed? I, I assume they brought horses. Like, that's a lot of extra poop. Like, where did that go? But uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, the, the, uh, the soldiers arrived. Uh, many of them brought families. Yes, uh, some of the officers brought horses. There were... Uh, of course, all the sailors on those ships who need, which needed to be supplied. Uh, so it was a, uh, a very big uh, demographic change and a, and a strain on the, uh, the town's resources. Uh, the first place that the soldiers went to, uh, to live was on Boston Common, but that was not in their tents. But the, everyone recognized that that was not a long-term solution, especially with winter coming on. So then over the next few weeks, there was this big argument about whether they, uh, whether certain government uh, buildings would be turned over to the troops uh, so that they could uh, spend the night there. Uh, unfortunately, those government buildings were things like Fannel Hall and the townhouse and uh, a uh, building next to the common called the Manufactory, uh, all of which... Uh, had other functions, and in some cases, uh, the Bostonians rightly uh, felt that this was this would be the military actually taking over the uh, buildings of civic government. Um, meanwhile, the Whigs of Boston were saying, according to the law, yes, uh, this town in the British Empire has to provide housing for soldiers sent to it, but we have housing out on Castle William. Uh, there are barracks already there. Why don't you just take all the soldiers there? There were indeed barracks at Castle William. However, Castle William was an island, and therefore putting all the soldiers there meant that they were not providing protection for the customs commissioners at all. So that argument went on for uh, a few weeks, 
Uh, and eventually, the British Army ended up renting uh, a number of buildings to be used, to be converted into barracks, um, mostly distilleries that were no longer uh, doing as much business as their owners uh, would have wished. And so the owners were happy to uh, get a new source of income from the British Army. And that showed one advantage to having all these troops in towns that the, the Whigs really didn't uh, emphasize, which is that the British Army paid. The British Army paid in hard currency. So that uh, having soldiers uh, yeah, being paid uh, and therefore shopping in town, having uh, uh, the army renting barracks, uh, having the army buying food and other supplies, that was actually an economic boost for the community. Now, you mentioned the manufactory, um, and the manufactory riot is probably one of my top three favorite riots in Boston history. <laughs> there are plenty to choose from. <laughs> so, it's a hard call. Um, can you tell us a little more about that? Uh, yes. Uh, a couple decades earlier, a bunch of Boston businessmen had this wonderful idea that if you built a big building next to the common and you taught the, pe the poor people of Boston how to spin and weave, then they could make cloth and uh, support themselves that way and the local economy would grow, and uh, they would no longer be importing so much cloth from Britain, and everybody would win, and they simply needed some startup money from the province to get this going. And indeed, they got the money from the province, they got this loan, they set up the business, and it collapsed. It, they, the numbers just didn't work out. So the uh, province of Massachusetts was therefore left with this large building in the middle of Boston, and this large debt, which was never going to be paid. Uh, at some point, they started to uh, rent or uh, let uh, certain families live in the manufactory, uh, a family named Brown, which you know, is very easy to trace there, uh, who, who I think were stocking weavers, and there was a, a button maker, and these other small, uh, small craftsmen living in the manufactory. When the British troops arrived, Governor Bernard looked around and said, well, here is this big building. It already belongs to Massachusetts, so I have all the authority with my council to simply let the British troops use it. And the locals and members of the council who were opposed to Governor Bernard said, no, no, you can't do that. There are poor families, poor, hardworking families already in that building. You cannot just throw them out. Uh, there were even some rumors, which are impossible to verify, that uh, the Boston officials moved extra families into the manufactory uh, to make sure that it uh, would be occupied. Uh, but then in uh, October 1768, uh, this sheriff of Suffolk County and some of the officers went to the building to try to take, over, take it over, and the inhabitants all barricaded themselves inside. So there was a uh, people inside the building, and then there was a ring of soldiers. And then outside the ring of soldiers were locals coming to support the people inside the building. And at times they were even like throwing loaves of bread over the soldiers' heads into the windows of the building so that the people inside would not starve. And this was partly symbolic, partly a real confrontation. And ultimately it ended with the British army saying, this is too much trouble. 
and going and finding someplace else to put their men. It's a great example of a community coming together. It's really (laughs) heartwarming if you're not a soldier. That sort of leads us to the question of how this sudden influx of soldiers and officers, and as you said, some of them brought their families, how this massive swelling of the population fit in with the folks who lived here. Can you tell us anything about how people spent their time, how soldiers, their families, wives were able to entertain themselves? How were they uh, making a living? And how did that compare to how the average Bostonian entertained themselves or how the average Bostonian made a living? Okay. It's, that's a very interesting question. And it's somewhat difficult to tell because most of our sources are uh, politically slanted one side or the other so that they were trying to uh, emphasize the conflicts. But there are also stories and evidence of um, the, these, uh, these newcomers becoming, in some ways, part of the community. Uh, so, for instance, a uh, professor at Carleton College, Serena Zabin, is doing work on uh, a family history of the Boston Massacre, as she calls it, where she is finding many, many examples of British soldiers marrying in Boston churches during this time. Were they marrying local women? We don't know in most cases, uh, but uh, there are some examples, certainly, of uh, British soldiers becoming <laughs> permanent parts of the community. Uh, there are soldiers who, during their off hours, went to work in Boston workshops or shops because uh, you were allowed to do that. Uh, there are also soldiers who are uh, getting in fights. There are officers who are getting in fights with the town watchmen. Uh, there is an, a story that I uh, really love from the very first weeks of this uh, of the British uh, after the British arrival, when a little boy from the North End went missing, and people were looking all over town for him. They got the town crier out to uh, walk around town, calling out that there was a lost boy. And finally, this news reached the camp of the British soldiers on the common, and a soldier's wife said, "Oh." There was a little boy who came wandering by here, and he looked so tired, and uh, he's sleeping in my tent with my children. And so that's an example of these families working together to restore this little boy to his parents. Uh, so it's, uh, although there were a lot of fights, there was a lot of arguing over soldiers drinking. There was a lot of arguing over uh, whether a particular British officer said something to encourage the enslaved people of Massachusetts to revolt. Uh, there are also these this undercurrent of the people actually getting along on an individual level. It is striking how, although the rhetoric is very anti-military, anti-soldiers, they're just going to be trouble, yet there was uh, immediately a problem with desertion. So obviously, individual soldiers were finding havens and people who were uh, sheltering them as they made their way out into the countryside. Uh, And uh, one of the major differences between this new part of the Boston population, the soldiery, is that they were not Congregationalists, and they did not understand the Calvinist religion uh, of the locals. Uh, so they usually worshipped and had their marriages and baptisms in the town's Anglican churches. 
but besides that, they were probably very much like working class Bostonians in their uh, in their manners, in their aspirations in life. Now you mentioned that desertion became a, a problem among the the occupying British regiments, and very early on in the occupation, in the first month of the occupation, there's an example of a private Richard Ames who was actually executed for desertion. Um, can you can you tell us anything about him, what his crime was, and then how his his execution sort of reverberated through Boston? Don Haggis, uh, author of British Soldiers, American War, he's found that desertions went up uh, when a regiment was moved, like when the regiments were moved from Halifax to Boston, that suddenly uh, a lot of people left their regiments in Halifax, partly because maybe they didn't want to leave or partly because they uh, knew that that was a moment that they had a better opportunity. And then when they arrived in Boston, there was another spate of desertions as people uh, saw more opportunity or maybe even wanted to go back or something. Um, so that those first weeks were uh, a, a bad time for the British Army in terms of desertion. And they wanted to make a, an example of uh, a man. Richard Ames had deserted before. He had been uh, caught red-handed, as it were. You could sometimes uh, return from desertion and uh, resume your military career. Not in this case. So, yes, the British Army executed him on the common, as an example to the other soldiers. Uh, desertion was also probably the main reason why the uh, army posted so many sentries around town and at the entrance to the town along the narrow neck. They were not really worried about you know, attacks from civilians. They were not calling out friend or foe because they thought that this merchant or that shoemaker was actually a danger. They were trying to make sure that uh, not uh, soldiers were not deserting, uh, but of course those uh, patrols did cause uh, locals to be uh, resentful. Uh, and the execution of Ames and the uh, other punishments carried out by the British Army on Boston Common were held up by the Whigs as an example of how much worse, how much crueler the army was than the local population. Uh, because they were Puritans, Massachusetts had rules on limiting the number of, uh, of uh, times you could be whipped because there was a biblical injunction against, I think, more than 40. Uh, whereas the British Army was uh, numbering whippings uh, in the hundreds or thousands of lashes. Oh, wow. Uh, another aspect of the punishment which the locals did not like, or at least the, the Whigs complained about in their newspaper reports, is that for the 29th Regiment of Foot, uh, the drummers were all uh, of African descent. Um, young men uh, purchased as slaves in the Caribbean and probably eventually freed uh, after their army careers. And in the British Army, the drummers and musicians carried out the punishments, carried out the whippings. So as uh, the, the Whig newspaper report said, it was an unusual sight to see black men whipping white men. Yeah, to think that must have sensed a r real sense of confusion and maybe fear down the spines of Bostonians. And imagine if that had been taking place in like a Virginia. Yeah. And, and those newspaper reports from the Whigs were sent. They were written for newspapers in New York and Point South. So they were written for 
an audience that had an even larger enslaved population among them. I want to return to something you said or started to say just a couple of minutes ago about the the average British soldier probably being a lot like the average working class Bostonian. And I only recently learned, and probably honestly it was from something you wrote, I only recently learned that the, the occupying British soldiers could take jobs in the local economy if it didn't interfere with their duties. Can you tell us what kind of jobs they might take and then how that changed their relationships with the Bostonians they were living alongside? That's an interesting question, and there is a lot of unanswered questions uh, around that. Um, one example that uh, I use is that uh, among the apprentices whose uh, argument with a sentry outside the Customs House led to the Boston Massacre on March 5th, 1770, well, the previous weekend, or Saturday, they had gone to an army barracks to visit a co-worker, Patrick Dines, D-I-N-E-S, who was somebody who in his off hours worked at the same barber shop or wig maker's shop. So he was a probably a skilled uh, barber or wig maker. Uh, he, He was on friendly enough terms with these apprentices that they went and visited him. Uh, and yet those same apprentices were, uh, hostile enough to the soldier, uh, to the sentry, uh, to start this argument. So it's, it really seems to depend on individual relationships. Some of the soldiers would have had skills that they learned as young men in Britain or Ireland. And, uh, so they were coming to be, uh, shoemakers. They were tailors. They were, uh, barbers, uh, and therefore could find work. Uh, many others were laborers, uh, which was usually meant uh, just farm boys, uh, and they would have had a harder time finding skilled labor, uh, skilled employment. But there were still places like the rope walks where they might have, uh, or the shipyard where they might have just needed some guys to haul around heavy stuff. The rope walk fight uh, that led up to the Boston Massacre started with a rope maker seeing a soldier named Patrick Walker passing by with a bucket on his way to the pump and calling out, soldier, would you work? I soldier, do you want a job? And Walker asking what sort of job he wanted. And then the rope maker saying, ha, you can clean my shit house or you can clean my little house, as he later testified in court where it was uh, more state. Uh, and that showed that the rope maker and the soldier both knew that there was a possibility of work. But at the same time, the soldier, the, the, the rope maker was simply uh, teasing the soldier about it. Now, some historians in the 1960s, 70s, uh, posited that there was actual economic competition between local laborers and the soldiers. So the soldiers, by coming in, having their uh, basic needs covered by, their, by the army, were willing to work for a lower wage, and therefore that depressed the uh, overall wages for the town, which is just another reason for the locals to resent them. And this is, you know, an economic uh, argument based on uh, how things should work. And there's actually, Serena Zabin has found no evidence that that was ever part of the discussion, 
in Boston in 1768 to 1770. Nobody's actually complaining about that. So that might mean that it didn't affect wages. We don't have uh, any statistical evidence about that. It may mean that the people who were writing the complaints in the newspapers were not the people who were trying to work for minimum wage, but the people who were employing them, and therefore were perfectly happy to see wages go down. Uh, and it may mean that the, uh, the the sort of traditional wage just kept where it was, and there was no real economic competition. The only friction uh, between soldiers and locals uh, at the work in the working class was uh, personal, whether you just like this guy or not. So, John, you mentioned the rope walks as being sort of a catalyst, a fight at the rope rope walks as being a catalyst in leading toward the Boston massacre. How did that unfold? How did an argument over cleaning someone's house escalate into one of the most famous events leading up to the the outbreak of the Revolutionary War? That's a good question, because in many ways, the situation had been calming down. In 1769, the British government decided that Boston had uh, been pacified enough and pulled two of the four army regiments out. And the Whigs stopped sending those incendiary reports to other cities uh, along the North American coast in 1769. Uh, there were still some complaints. There was something called the Neck Riot in October 1769 when there was a fight over firewood out uh, on the Boston Neck and uh, whether uh, a soldier, whether the officer out there had to obey a, a writ right away, or could he wait until the end of his shift? And of course, that was just the thing to riot about. Uh, and so things actually seem to be calming down a bit. But in early 1770, the Boston Whigs really began to push the boycott against British imports, the non-importation agreement. Uh, as a way to put pressure on the London economy and thus on Parliament to uh, pull back on the Townsend Act. And as part of that uh, that political push, every Thursday, the schoolboys of Boston would go out and uh, picket the shops of the very few shop owners who were still selling imported goods. One of the uh, one of those picket uh, actions in late February 1770 uh, escalated into a fight with an already hated customs employee named Ebenezer Richardson, and he his house was mobbed, his family was being attacked, and he uh, ultimately shot his gun out an upper story window into the crowd and killed a boy who was only about 11 years old. Then came the uh, rope walk fight uh, a week later. There was a huge funeral for the boy. Uh, so all these things were increasing tensions in Boston. And uh, after the rope walk fight, there were other brawls between soldiers and uh, civilians. Then on the 5th of March, as I said before, these barber's apprentices got into this quarrel with the sentry at the customs house, and that sentry uh, hit one of the boys. So, uh, and his friends went rushing around town complaining that 
the sentry had attacked the boy. So here we had another example of a British government employee attacking another local boy just 11 days after uh, Ebenezer Richardson had killed this 11-year-old. And so uh, a lot of little things built up, built up to an emotional pitch where uh, there suddenly was this very uh, violent confrontation in front of the Customs House that ended with the soldiers, uh, the outnumbered soldiers there firing into the crowd and killing five men. Which we famously know as the Boston Massacre and which uh, notoriously, you narrate, I think, every year the reenactment of that. That's Is that right? right? Uh, with the Bostonian Society and some excellent volunteer reenactors, uh, there is a, uh, a an acting out of what led up to the, the uh, shooting and then the shooting itself. We've attended, and I really enjoy yelling the colonial era insults. That's my favorite part. There are a lot of them, <laughs> yes. And, and I think we're, we... Uh, pick those out from the uh, depositions left by British soldiers about what exactly they were being called. British troops, after the massacre, British troops would remain in in Boston more or less until Evacuation Day in March of 1776. But that doesn't mean that the occupation remained unchanged. In fact, a, a lot did change in Boston after the Boston Massacre. Yes. Uh, Im- Immediately the next day, Samuel Adams uh, oversaw this huge town meeting uh, and uh, a very solemn crowd around the uh, what is now the old state house demanding that the troops be removed and basically forcing Governor Thomas Hutchinson and the uh, commander, uh, the highest ranking British Army officer at the time, Colonel William Dalrymple, to remove the 40, the 29th Regiment out to Castle William, and then to promise to remove the 14th Regiment as well, which they did a few uh, days later. Uh, and then those, uh, I think the, the 29th was rather quickly moved down to New Jersey. The 14th remained in Boston for a few more months and then was sent to the Caribbean, but other troops were rotated in, but they always were out at the castle. And there weren't as many of them as there were as, as landed in 1768. So they were not, they simply were not as big a presence in Boston. And they did not interfere with the Boston Tea Party. They did not interfere with any of the other riots that took place between uh, early 1770 and, seven, and May 1774. So while legally there were troops in Boston, uh, in, within the town of Boston legally defined uh, during those years, uh, they were not a factor in the uh, politics or actions of the town. That's why it was such a big deal when the British, our, uh, British government sent in troops again in May 1774 to help close the port and keep order. But it sounds like when we talk about the occupation of Boston, we're really talking about that period from October 1st, 1768, through the withdrawal to the to the castle after the massacre. That's right. That was the first occupation. Now, some people will say that this was not a legal military occupation because it was you know, British troops sent by the British government within the British Empire. They had every right to be there. Uh, and that's that's a uh, perfectly good, good argument. But there was the reason there was so much fighting was because not everybody accepted that argument. Uh, the 
for the people of Boston, for the civilians, uh, it felt like an occupation because suddenly, as we talked about before, there was this very large influx of uh, soldiers in red coats everywhere. There were sentries on the street. There were uh, complaints of uh, not being able to get into town without being uh, asked who goes there, friend or foe. And so when we think of occupations, military occupations and checkpoints and uh, sentries and having to uh, deal with a new military authority that has that doesn't uh, answer to uh, the local democratic authorities, well, that's what this was. That was what uh, a military occupation felt like. Yeah, which is not something that the modern American is familiar with, I think. That's the right. Reconstruction was pretty much the last time anybody in this country would have been in that kind of condition. So, John, can you tell us about the upcoming reenactment of the landing and encampment on Boston Common? Sure. On October 6th and 7th, the Revolution 250 Committee and its core of volunteers is going to reenact that uh, crucial moment when British troops first came into Boston. Uh, troops will actually be marching up Long Wharf and through the city to Boston Common, just as troops back on October 1st, 1768, marched up the same wharf. It was uh, not quite as, uh, as uh, the length was different then, but it was still the Long Wharf. Uh, they will be, there will also be uh, troops and civilian reenactors uh, in various parts of central Boston during that time, during that weekend, uh, reenacting different interactions between these new arrivals and the locals. So uh, talking about uh, shopping, about employment, about uh, the town watch and who has authority over who, uh, talking about the troops trying to find places to live, places where their families can live. Uh, so this is uh, an attempt to really bring back what it was like 250 years before uh, in Boston. And uh, it is, that also happens to be you know, a leaf-peeping weekend. So we anticipate a, a lot of tourists learning about what was going on 250 years ago in Massachusetts. And if people want to find out more about the, the schedule of events or where they should go to see some of these events, where can they find that information? Uh, the best a place is the revolution250.org website, uh, and uh, there will also many of the uh, major uh, historic sites in the center of Boston, the old State House, uh, the old South Meeting House, uh, Old North Church, and so on, are uh, part of the Revolution 250 coalition, so they will be participating uh, and have special events as well. Now, before we go, we realized that we've, in a way, we've done a very unkind thing by inviting an author to join us on the show and then not asking anything about the subject of your book. So before we finish up here, can you give us an idea of what your book, The Road to Concord, is all about? Well, when I left off the story, we were in May 1774, and the troops were back, and General Gage was now was no longer the commander-in-chief down in New York. He was the new royal governor of Massachusetts. And he tried in the summer of 1774 to bring Massachusetts and Boston under his authority. And that uh, broke down spectacularly on September 2nd, 1774, in an event that later was called the Powder Alarm, 
when four to 5,000 militiamen marched into Cambridge, uh, alerted by what turned out to be false rumors that there had been a second Boston massacre. And uh, in Cambridge, they forced the lieutenant governor and every other royal appointee in town to resign or apologize. And that event showed that Governor Gage, far from reasserting royal control over this restive province, now only had authority over Boston itself. And also, that was the moment that the political solution seemed out of reach and people began to move toward a military solution. Uh, almost immediately, towns began to look at their, their militia supplies, their gunpowder, and their cannon. And my book, The Road to Concord, starts on at the beginning of September 1774. And by the end of that month, people had been stealing cannon from batteries in Charlestown, from a point in Dorchester, and from armories in Boston that were under Redcoat Guard. And we hardly ever hear about the Minutemen and the militia out uh, at Lexington and Concord having cannon. Well, they didn't actually deploy cannon at the time, but they did have cannon in their control because they had spent the month from September 1774 to April 1775 gathering those guns, hiding them, smuggling them out to the countryside, and then starting to prepare them for war. And that's what the road to Concord is all about. It's about why the British army went out to Concord and what they hoped they would find there, which was cannon. So if people want to find more of your work or if they want to follow you online, where should they do that? Uh, well, my website is boston1775.net, and every day I post a little something about revolutionary New England. Uh, I also have a pretty active Twitter feed at Boston1775. And I have a Facebook feed, which is less active because I don't understand Facebook. But uh, people are also welcome to follow me there. Well, John, we just want to say thank you very much for joining us. It's, it's been a pleasure having you here today. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Thanks, Nikki. To learn more about the occupation of Boston from 1768 to 1770, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 100. We'll have copies of the Paul Revere engraving of the troops landing at Long Wharf, as well as the painting by Christian Remick that inspired it. We'll have links to J.L. Bell's blog, social profiles, and to his book, The Road to Concord, How Four Stolen Cannon Ignited the Revolutionary War. And we'll link back to our past episodes about the 1747 impressment riot, the tradition of riotous Pope's Night celebrations on November 5th in Boston, and the 1689 rebellion against Governor Edmund Andros and his royal authority in Massachusetts. And, of course, we'll have links to more information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. If you would like a Hub History sticker for your laptop or bumper, you are in luck. Just write us a review on Apple Podcasts, send a screenshot of the review, and the address where we should send the sticker to podcast at hubhistory.com. Our second anniversary is coming up at the end of October, so our favorite review that we receive between now and our anniversary will get both a sticker and one of the books that we've recently reviewed on the show. If we really like your review, maybe we will send you a jar of chutney made from apples we picked in John Adams' orchard. If you want to get in touch with us about the occupation, about our 100th episode, or about our upcoming anniversary, you can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as Hub History, 
Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. And if you enjoy listening to us every week, why not tell a friend? Word-of-mouth recommendations are even better than reviews on Apple Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. 